This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. This afternoon, is the, the first session is intentionally named uh, a systematic approach to systemic therapy. But you will note that it doesn't say advanced disease. Um, and s- someone came into my session, my door was labeled advanced disease or something, and um, th- there's an awful lot of overlap, right? You heard this morning about how PSMA PET has turned you know, climbing PSA patients into metastatic patients, and we've also heard how definitive local therapy like radiation uh, in the face of metastatic disease prolonged survival, <clears throat> uh, androgen deprivation cuts across many stages of disease. So I think it's sort of artificial, and it's rapidly um, uh, uh, that the boundary between localized disease and systemic disease is, is I wouldn't say disappearing, but is, is becoming more blurred. And so this afternoon, we're going to be talking a little bit more about systemic disease, disease that goes throughout your whole system. And I would you know, beg your indulgence in, in, in thinking about it for any time systemic therapy is needed. In some cases, you'll hear from Dr. Agarwal, uh, it really is quite specific to uh, when there are bone metastases, but in other situations, it's, it's not at all. So with that, um, I've already introduced uh, Dr. Agarwal once, um, um, medical oncologist who leads our developmental therapeutics program. Um, Rahul is going to be speaking about the optimal treatment of bone metastases. All right. Thanks, Eric. And I hope everyone had a great lunch. I'm going to, this will be a pretty focused talk just specifically on bone health and bone metastases. It'll be time for questions. And then Eric and myself will be talking about a little bit more broadly systemic therapies um, in terms of the different treatment modalities we think about. Uh, and then for the third talk in this session, June, we'll be talking about diet and exercise. Uh, and I know folks are really looking forward to that as well. So uh, like my last talk, I don't have too many slides, so hopefully there'll be some time for questions. And I'd like to start with uh, the example of two different patients, because there's really two aspects of bone health that are important in patients with prostate cancer. One is that the therapies we give, the androgen deprivation therapy, by lowering testosterone and thereby estrogen levels in a man's body, does lead to increased risk of osteopenia osteoporosis. One of the outcomes of osteoporosis, which we do see in the clinic uh, not infrequently, is the development of compression fractures and other osteoporotic fractures. And so the, the, the patient on the left, this is a sort of a side view of the spine using an MRI. And you can see circled in red is an area where the vertebral body has collapsed. Not because there's a metastasis there, just because the bones are thinner. And so maintaining bone health, and we'll hear more about it Uh, from June as well as in the next session in terms of just metabolic uh, changes that hormone therapy can induce and how do we risk mitigate against that risk. But nevertheless, the bone health really covers not just bone metastases but also uh, preventing osteoporosis. And then in the, in the setting where there are metastases, what we really uh, want to watch for and what we always ask about in the clinic and are asking patients about is this level of pain and pain in the back can be a predictor of spinal cord compression. And this is one of the uh, really worrisome outcomes for patients with prostate cancer where the cancer starts to spread posteriorly from the vertebral body 
uh, backwards into the spinal canal and spinal cord and that can lead to a lot of neurologic problems. So a lot of the medicines we give even though they're, they're systemic therapies and really focused on overall benefit for, for patients, one of the key endpoints in our clinical trials is can we delay or prevent this type of skeletal event? And, and that's become increasingly, I'd say, one of the most clinically relevant endpoints in our, in our clinical trials and the way we talk to, these, talk to patients about these therapies is preventing this type of event from happening. So in terms of the bone health monitoring, so the hormone therapy-induced bone thinning. Um, these are not uniform guidelines, but a, a, a sort of rough snapshot about what, we, what I do, what we do as a group when we treat patients with long-term hormonal therapy. Um, one of the things I see a lot uh, for patients referred out uh, from the community into us is, is sort of attention on the prostate cancer, but maybe not as much attention on the bone density and bone health. And so we really are, are big proponents of getting a baseline bone density test. I will say even at baseline, I'm surprised by the frequency and the prevalence of osteopenia or even osteoporosis among men as a sort of natural uh, aging process. And so it's really good to know that at baseline. And then depending on what the baseline bone density shows, that dictates the interval at which we would get follow-up imaging, especially for a patient on long-term androgen deprivation therapy. I tend to, or we tend to use, in terms of whether we should start such a patient on some type of bone-modifying agent like Fosamax, Alendronate, or another bisphosphonate, really based on the estimated fracture risk. And I really try to get away from using just the bone density test but really estimating what the risk of fracture is for that patient, which takes into account family history, smoking history, uh, body mass index, other things that can really inform us in terms of does the, is the risk high enough to warrant starting one of these medicines. These medicines do have side effects, and that's, that's been in the news a lot. But for a patient who has had a high risk of osteoporotic fracture, where that can be a life-altering event, we do believe the benefit outweighs the risk, but you clearly need to, to do this risk stratification with patients. So this is just some of the trial data showing uh, protection against osteoporotic risk uh, and osteoporotic fracture. This was a trial with uh, denosumab given every six months. Um, I think all the agents, by and large, uh, work pretty similarly. So we don't really sort of favor one agent over the other. But this was a denosumab versus no treatment, or placebo in this case. And they basically followed patients out from when they started hormonal therapy. And they had higher risk of loss of bone density, so osteopenia or higher. Uh, at baseline, and you can see that over time, the patients who got denosumab had a, actually an increase in bone density, or at least preservation of bone density, whereas those that didn't, who were on hormone therapy, the bone density, as expected, continued to decline on hormonal therapy. Then more relevant than this, which this is just looking at a DEXA scan, is clinically, is there actually any meaningful difference? And you do see that although the absolute difference is small, we're talking about two, three percentage points, there is a reduction in risk with the addition of a medicine like denosumab. And so I think regardless of whatever agent you use, there is important to check bone density, and for those at higher risk, really um, intervene and try to reduce that risk. Uh, we'll talk some, about some of the more lifestyle interventions things like uh, resistance training and weight-bearing exercise, which can also positively impact patients' bone density. <laughs> In terms of bone metastases and how this impacts patients, I showed you the example of the patient with a spinal cord compression. Uh, pain in a bone metastasis requiring radiation or surgery is another type of event that we sort of put under the bucket of symptomatic skeletal-related events and then a symptomatic fracture like a compression fracture. So those three, that composite endpoint, any one of those three, 
is a really key endpoint to look at with any systemic therapy that we use in prostate cancer. Bone is by far and away the most common site of metastasis in prostate cancer. Managing advanced prostate cancer in some ways is really managing their bone health. And so, you know, it's a really important endpoint and, and one that we luckily have medicines that can directly reduce the risk of these types of events. It's not just the symptomatic skeletal related events, but I'd say having cancer in the bone can lead to low blood counts, which of course can lead to fatigue and risk of infection and bleeding and so forth. The good news, we have medicines that can really positively impact and reduce the risk of skeletal related events. The agents on the left, the bisphosphonates, zoledronic acid, pemadronic acid, denosumab, have been specifically designed to try to decrease the risk of skeletal related events. I'll show you some of the data, but more important than the details is just to know that these are therapies that are given as adjuncts in addition to standard systemic therapies for prostate cancer to reduce the risk of skeletal related events. Radium-223 is a radiopharmaceutical. We'll cover that a little bit in our next talk, so I won't, won't spend too much time. But just to say that not only does it impact prostate cancer-related outcomes, but specifically reduces bone-related events. And then even, even hormonal therapy. So some of the medicines that we've talked about in the androgen deprivation therapy talks, when you look at long-term outcomes, one of the key endpoints of these studies, they actually did delay the time to skeletal-related events. And so it's a really important marker of an overall drug's benefit in this patient population. This is just one example, and I don't want to get too bogged down in the details, but this was a uh, phase three study that now is almost 10 years old. It was published in 2011 with denosumab versus zoledronic acid, looking in time to skeletal related event, which is the primary endpoint of the study. And kind of going back to our, our old friend, a Kaplan-Meier curve, you do see that there's a separation, the space here between the two curves. It was statistically significant. I would say that the magnitude of benefit between the denosumab and the bisphosphonase is pretty small. Uh, and there are some trade-offs. So a couple of the side effects that we really watch for with denosumab that occur to a higher prevalence, so you do see a little bit higher rates of low calcium levels in the blood. Now that we're pretty familiar with this side effect, we monitor these levels before each dose. We give patients oral calcium supplements, and this is, by and large, taken, the, taken away this as a clinically relevant side effect. But when these medicines were first used, we saw patients get symptomatic low calcium levels, which can be quite troublesome. Uh, more bothersome than that is the risk of osteonecrosis of the jaw, which is a really sort of long-term uh, side effect that can be a little bit difficult to deal with. This is bone in the jaw that doesn't heal well, especially in patients who have uh, poor dentition or need for tooth extractions, dental work while receiving one of these agents. And so part of what we do in clinic and talk to patients about, sort of give them the odd request that they see their dentist before we start one of these medicines, it's to protect against this risk of osteonecrosis. And so that's an important piece to do up front, a little bit of homework on the patient side to see their dentist before we can safely start one of these medicines. And so this just covers this. We're, we're looking for different side effects. One of the advantages of Exgiva or denosumab over Zometa or other bisphosphonates is given subcutaneous, so it doesn't require an IV infusion. You see less of a risk of kidney dysfunction and less of a systemic or sort of flu-like reaction, which can happen in a small percentage of patients. This is the data with radium-223. Radium-223 is an, a medicine that's injected IV. I think you're recovering in our next talk, so I'll kind of, uh, you know, won't spend too much time here. But just to say that it definitely does reduce the risk of skeletal-related events. 
But interestingly, this is particularly the case in patients who were on a bisphosphonate or other medicine to protect the bone at the time that they enrolled. And so I think it, it emphasizes the point that we don't want to use one of these systemic therapies that doesn't replace the need to be on a medicine like denosumab or Zometa. Particularly focusing on the bone is an important adjunct, even as we think about all the other systemic therapies. And then there's been a lot of data with combination trials with radium 2 to 3 plus another medicine. Suffice to say that we actually saw surprising data that this may increase the risk of fractures, particularly with abiraterone trial that was halted early because the fracture rate was so high. And so these medicines are not benign and we really need to use the data and not combine them outside of a trial because that can lead to unanticipated side effects. This is a trial that Eric led as part of the um, now Alliance, but at the time was a CalGB cooperative group. This was, this was an NCI, Natural Cancer Institute funded cooperative groups to do large clinical trials that maybe the pharmaceutical sponsors are not as interested in doing. But there's a really important question of, well, we know that these medicines are beneficial in the hormone resistant metastatic setting. How about moving them up front for patients that have metastatic but newly diagnosed disease where they're just starting on hormonal therapy? And it turns out for the vast majority of patients, there's actually no benefit to starting one of these medicines in this setting. I still see it where patients get referred to me and they're on a medicine like denosumab or Zometa. There are certain select cases where I might think about it, a patient who had sort of what we call lytic rather than sclerotic mets that might be at higher risk of fracture. But by and large, we should not be using these types of medicines in, in all comers with metastatic prostate cancer unless and until it becomes hormone resistant. So that's all I'll cover with this session. I'm, uh, we'll be, um, uh, I'm happy to take some questions, and then our next one will cover systemic therapies more broadly. So here's one that I get uh, a lot is, so is, is Fosamax a safe drug treatment is a question. And I think this alludes to the fact that there uh, have been some reports of some of the side effects and particularly long-term side effects of medicines like Fosamax, which the generic name is Alendronate. This is an oral bisphosphonate. In long-term use, five, 10 plus years, there is a rare but real risk of fractures of the long bones like the femur. Uh, in my practice, I try to track how long patients have been on one of these medicines. And if the bone density is stable after a few years, I will probably after three to five years of treatment generally recommend that a patient stop treatment exactly for this reason. Um, some of the other data, some of the other side effects uh, reported with it, I think that the data is a little bit more mixed. And again, it's that risk benefit. Uh, if the fracture risk is high enough to warrant, you know, I do think that the, the benefits outweigh the risks. Let's see what else we have here. What about radium-223 and apalutamide? So I assume this question pertains to the combination of those two medicines. So there was data that was just presented at our oncology meeting last week of radium plus enzalutamide, which is a close cousin of apalutamide. And it seems like we don't have the full results of that trial, but when you rigorously use a medicine like a bisphosphonate, you can by and large eliminate that elevated fracture risk for getting the combination. We don't know yet whether the combination improves outcomes, but it does seem like we can safely intervene on the bone fracture risk when we use a medicine like Zometa or denosumab. And so there's more data to come with these combinations, um, but that was somewhat reassuring data to see that just came out uh, a week ago. Let's see. Maybe we'll do... 
Vitamin D and calcium, yeah, it's a great question. I probably, uh, if you pulled like a 10 different docs, you probably get 10 different answers on how much calcium and vitamin D to recommend. And I, I don't know, if, is June here? I don't June. see, she's coming. So you'll, you'll hear a little bit more about supplements and diet uh, recommendations, but in general, what I tell patients is I, I do think that the data would suggest that vitamin D supplementation, out of the two vitamin D supplementations, probably the more important. Um, in, in a healthy all-comers population, there's been recent data that vitamin D supplementation doesn't really impact outcomes, but I think if you're talking about a selective group of patients that are at higher risk of osteoporosis, I think there is still benefit. Um, I generally will recommend around 1,000 units a day as a just general starting dose. I try to track vitamin D levels uh, and keep them somewhere between 30 to 50. Um, 20 to 30 would be sort of insufficient. Below 20 is generally regarded as deficient. Um, it's an easy supplement to take, and so I, I do think that it may have some modest impact. It doesn't replace the need to start a medicine like Alendronate if the risk of fracture is high enough to warrant it. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.